0: chapter 12 of uganda's white man of work a story of alexander m mckay this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by Marianne. uganda's white man of work a story of alexander m mckay by sophia lionfas chapter 12 the white man of work lays down his tools once more there was a period of comparative quiet in Uganda. Another of the white men left, for England. Indeed, Mr. Ashe and Mr. Mackay had both asked permission to go. This was not because of any thought of abandoning their work, nor because of any fear of death. But it was thought that perhaps through their temporary absence the persecutions of the Christians might cease. Then, being again quiet in mind, Wanga might with real heartiness invite missionaries to return to his capital." After many discussions at court, his black majesty finally consented that Mr. Ash should leave, but not so Mr. McKay, for whom the king pretended to have a most remarkable affection. So Mr. McKay bade farewell to his long-time companion, and for nearly a year held the fort in Uganda alone. Notwithstanding the edict that all who dared to go to the mission would be put to death, large numbers of readers stole away unnoticed to the white man's house. Several months after Mr. Ash left, Mr. McKay wrote, for a couple of months after you left, I was having a regular houseful of strangers every evening. The tin of petroleum arrived in time, and with it I could make a respectable light, so that the library became a night school. Late, late, often very late, we wound up, and I was often more than exhausted, reading, teaching, giving medicine, and doing other work. By day I got, off and on, some translation done. In addition to his teaching and doctoring, the white man of work undertook to construct a spinning wheel and weaver's loom, so that the waganda might learn to spin and weave their own cloth. When the royal mechanics had all failed, McKay was asked to mount a large flagstaff in the king's enclosure. Very awkward helpers they were who aided him, and it was only after many days of patient labor that the pole slipped into the hole dug for it, and stood up tall and firm, to the astonishment and delight of the king and chiefs. Whenever time could be spared, Mackay labored on the translation and printing of the Gospel of Matthew. In a few months, the first edition of 150 copies came from the press, and the eager Christians were able to read for themselves the precious stories of the Christ, his coming as a babe in Bethlehem, his teachings on the Mount, his miracles, his parables, and finally his sufferings, death, and resurrection. But such events as these came only occasionally to brighten Mackay's life for the most part the shadows far outnumber the bright spots throughout that year of loneliness again and again plots were laid for his life and since the fickle mwanga could never be trusted much of mackay's work had to be done in secret in dangers oft and trials ever how hard it must have been to keep brave and cheerful in a letter written about this time mackay said what sadness and melancholy comes over me at times and i find myself shedding tears like a child THEN THOSE WONDERFUL CONSOLING PSALMS SEND A THRILL OF JOY TO MY WHOLE BEING. I HAVE NOT THE SLIGHTEST DESIRE TO ESCAPE, IF I CAN DO A PARTICLE OF GOOD BY STAYING. MY DESIRE IS THAT THE LORD WILL OPEN THE WAY FOR THE MISSION TO BE KEPT UP, NOT ABANDONED. OUR SHIP IS IN PORT, SOME TWELVE MILES OFF, AND POSSIBLY I MIGHT MAKE A DASH FOR IT. BUT WHAT THEN? I DO NOT AT PRESENT SEE THAT I AM WARRANTED IN SEEKING TO DO SO. ANYTHING MAY HAPPEN AT ANY MOMENT and it may be that I shall be led to adopt such a course, but hitherto I believe I am doing right in quietly going on with the work. My earnest heart-wish is simply to cast myself on the Master and say, Thy will be done. For a time, Mwanga pretended to be a Mohammedan and ordered all his pages to read the Koran. On the refusal of a number to obey his orders, Wanga complained that all those who read with the white men were stubborn and compelled him to be ever killing them so that people would call him a madman. He threatened to kill very many, but his queen mother, although a heathen, warned him against putting his pages to death, since, she said, in a few years they would be the chief strength of his country. Now that Mackay was alone, his old enemies, the Arabs, redoubled their efforts to drive him from the country. Again and again they slandered his character before Mwanga. When a letter, written in Arabic, came from the English council in Zanzibar, they mistranslated it to the king. So that it read that the council advised Mwanga to drive Mackay out of the country at once. The king hesitated, not knowing which to believe, the Arabs or Mackay. Now he seemed in favor of Mackay's leaving, Again, he refused his permission. The strain of uncertainty lasted several weeks, but McKay waited in patience. Finally, the king definitely declared, I will not have his teaching in the country while I live. After I am dead, the people may learn to read. McKay did not leave, however, until he gained a promise from the king to send a native messenger along with him in the boat, so that, on the return trip of the ship, another Englishman might be brought to Uganda to take McKay's place. So one day in the summer of 1887, McKay bade farewell to his Uganda home and to the great heathen capital and its king, locked up the mission houses, and started for the port. Goodbye gifts were given back and forth between Wanga, the chiefs, and McKay, and the Waganda Christians called to have their last words with the white man. For nine years he had been to some of them a faithful friend and father, and it was hard for them to let him go. Not long, however, were the persecuted Waganda Christians left alone. The boat that carried Mr. McKay to the southern end of the lake brought Mr. Gordon, a nephew of Bishop Hennington, to take his place. Mr. Gordon was soon joined by Mr. Walker, and these two brave men persistently kept the work moving forward. Within about a year's time, two revolutions occurred in Uganda. Mwanga's cruelties grew so loathsome to his subjects that they arose in a body and dethroned him placing his brother, Kalema, on the throne in his stead. Under the new monarch, Roman Catholic and Protestant Christians were given the chief offices of the kingdom, and for a while, readers flocked to the mission like swarms of bees. The jealousy of the Arabs, however, was not long in being stirred. They headed a second revolution. A new king was put on the throne, and the important chieftainships given to Mohammedans. For six days, both the French and English missionaries were imprisoned in a filthy hut within the king's enclosure. The furious Mohammedan mob robbed the Protestant mission of every article of furniture, beds, tables, chairs, bookcases, boxes, everything. Every book was torn to bits, and every bottle of medicine was smashed or emptied of its contents. Doors were wrenched from their hinges and carried away, and the mission house left as a desolate wreck. The French priests and Protestant missionaries were together put on board the white man's ship, no food, almost no clothing, and no bedding being allowed for their voyage to the southern end of the lake. Mr. Walker was even robbed of his hat, coat, and trousers before starting, and the only two books he saved, his New Testament and his Prayer Book, were snatched from him and thrown into the lake. The captain carried us on board, wrote Mr. Gordon, and we heard the voice of the officer behind us. He was giving us Uganda's parting message. Let no white man come to Uganda for the space of two years. We do not want to see McKay's boat in Uganda waters for a long time to come. We do not want to see a white teacher back in Uganda until we have converted the whole of Uganda to the Mohammedan faith. While revolutions and fanatical outbursts were taking place in Uganda, McKay was beginning missionary work anew at a place called Usambrio, near the southern shore of Lake Victoria. About 70 miles to the eastward, a wretched fugitive, having escaped from Uganda in a canoe with perhaps half a dozen companions, was the cruel, despised Wanga. Regardless of the unspeakable wrongs this tyrant had committed against him, and against so many whom he loved, the earnest, forgiving missionary now wrote and offered the ruined king a refuge with him in Usambrio. Murderer and persecutor as he has been, wrote Mr. Mackay. I yet have not the faintest doubt that it becomes us to do everything in our power to return him good for evil. Mwanga, fearing the Arabs, felt at the time unable to escape. He implored McKay to come to him and deliver him, but this the missionary could not do. Some months later, Mwanga fled to the Catholic mission where he was soon baptized. By a third revolution in Uganda, he was later restored to his throne, and the chieftainships were divided equally between the Christians and the Arabs. But Mwanga was as Samson with his hair shorn. Never again did he gain his old power. He became little more than a puppet in the hands of his chiefs, and at his death no one could say that he had ever shown any certain signs that he had become a real heart Christian. In the meantime, what was McKay doing at Usambaro? When the Waganda Christians were exiled from their country, some twenty-five of them fled to McKay. With their assistance, he built a neat five-room house for himself and the two or three other white men who sometimes were with him. Workshops, houses for his boys, buildings for his chickens, goats, and cattle, and a garden where he could raise vegetables were other results of their industry. Finally, the entire grounds, when enclosed by a neat grass fence, became an attractive, home-like spot in the midst of a barren, dry, and treeless waste. Even when driven from Uganda, McKay did not cease to toil for the land he had long since called his own. He directed his exiled Christians in the use of the printing press, and many pages of scripture verses, prayers, and hymns from time to time were sent to Uganda. Then, too, with the assistance of the more intelligent among Christians, he began the translation of the Gospel according to St. John. For years it had been his ambition to build a good steam launch for the use of the missionaries on Victoria Lake. Indeed, on first coming to Africa he brought with him a steam boiler and engine, but he had never succeeded in gaining Mutesa's or Mwanga's permission to build the boat. Now at last he was able to begin. Riding home, he said, I have my hands full, preparing to build our new boat. I have cut the timber some twenty miles distant and have carried it here. You will be probably disgusted at hearing that I am busy just now making bricks to build a house in which to build the vessel. Within the last fortnight we have made some ten thousand— That is doubtless poor work to be occupied with in the mission field, but it must be done, and even in such a humble occupation, I hope the good Lord will not withhold his blessing. Mission boats, unfortunately, do not grow of themselves. They have to be built, every inch of them. But trees have been growing for ages, of the Lord's planting, and as we fell them, I like to think that he made them grow for this purpose. A little later he wrote again, I have just received seventy loads of rivets, fittings, rope, paint, and other material for this vessel, for which I am collecting the needed timber. Some time ago I wrote you of my felling trees in the forest some ten to twenty miles distant. The problem then was to have these conveyed to this station. I found that the logs were too heavy either to drag or to have carried by all the men I could muster. I therefore set to work and made a strong four-wheeled wagon with which to fetch the logs entire here." This has proved quite a success, and already we have dragged a log weighing a ton and a half to this place with no difficulty. It is the first wheeled vehicle ever seen in this region since the world began, with the exception of an iron wheelbarrow, which was used in the building of the Suez Canal and was shipped over here. This wheelbarrow has proved a marvel to the natives, but the ease with which our wagon rolls along with a large log on the top of it is a far greater wonder still." It was in August 1889, the last summer of Mackay's life. Mr. Stanley happened to be returning to the coast, having rescued an English governor who had long been a prisoner in Central Africa. Passing by Mackay's mission, he and his company remained with the missionary nearly a month. Stanley's story of his visit gives a picture of the kind of life Mackay was living. The next day, says Mr. Stanley, having already sent messages ahead that we might not take Mr. Mackay by surprise, we arrived in view of the English mission. It was built in the middle of what appeared to be no better than a gray waste. The ground gently sloped from curious heaps of big boulders or enormous blocks thrown higgly-piggly in the height of a respectable hill, down to a marshy flat, green with its dense crop of papyrus. Beyond this we saw a gleam of a line of water produced from an inlet of Victoria Lake. We were approaching the mission by a wagon track, and presently we came to the wagon itself, a simple thing of wooden wheels for carrying timber for building. There was not a green thing in view except in the marsh. Grass all dead, trees either shrunk, withered, or dead. At least there was not the promise of a bud anywhere, which, of course, was entirely due to the dry season. When we were about half a mile off, a gentleman of small stature, with brown hair, dressed in white linen and a gray hat, advanced to meet us. "'And so you are Mr. Mackay. Mwanga did not get you, then, this time. What experiences you must have had with that man. But you look so well, one would say you had been in England lately. Oh, no, this is my twelfth year. Mwanga permitted me to leave. And the Reverend Cyril Gordon took my place, but not for long, since they were all shortly after expelled from Uganda. Talking thus, we entered the circle of tall poles within which the mission station was built. There were signs of labor and constant, unwearying patience and sweating under a hot sun. We saw that McKay was determined to do something to keep the mind employed and never to let idleness find him with folded hands brooding over the unloveliness. There was a big, solid workshop in the yard, filled with machinery and tools. A launcher's boiler was being prepared by the blacksmiths. A big canoe was outside repairing. There were sawpits and large logs of hard timber. There were great stacks of palisade poles. In the corner of an outer yard was a cattle fold and a goat pen, fowls by the score pecked at minute grains, and out of the European quarter there trooped out a number of little boys and big boys, looking uncommonly sleek and happy, and quiet laborers came up to bid us, with hats off, good morning. I was ushered into the room of a substantial clay structure, the walls about two feet thick, evenly plastered and garnished with missionary pictures. There were four separate ranges of shelves, filled with choice, useful books. "'Allahu Akbar,' replied Hassan, his Zanzibar headman to me. "'Books. McKay has thousands of books, in the dining-room, bedroom, the church, everywhere. Books. Ah, loads upon loads of them. And while I was sipping real coffee and eating homemade bread and butter for the first time for thirty months, I thoroughly sympathized with McKay's love of books.' It becomes quite clear why, among so many books and children and outdoor work, McKay cannot find leisure to brood and think of being lonely. He has no time to fret and groan and weep, and God knows if ever man had reason to be doleful and lonely and sad, McKay had, when, after murdering his bishop and burning his pupils and strangling his converts and clubbing to death his dark friends, Mwanga turned his eye of death on him and yet the little man met it with calm blue eyes that never winked. It is worth going a long journey to see one man of this kind, working day after day for twelve hours bravely, and without a syllable of complaint or a moan, and to hear him lead his little flock in singing and prayer to show forth God's kindliness in the morning and his faithfulness every night. Stanley and his officers urged McKay to return home with them. The Church Missionary Society's secretaries time after time, had invited him to return to England. His friends wrote letters begging him to come home for a rest, but the faithful Christian soldier refused to leave his post until more men were sent to carry on the work in his absence. At last, only a few months later, his summons to rest came from his Lord in Heaven. His only white companion in Usambiro, Mr. Deeks, was preparing to return to England because of ill health. The day of his departure came, he and his men had risen early, and all the packing which was still to be done was completed by sunrise, and they were ready to start on the long march to the coast. But where was Mr. Mackay? Could it be that he was sleeping while the others within the enclosure were up and busy helping the party get a good start before the scorching sun compelled them to halt? Mr. Mackay had worked hard the day before, and perhaps he was resting unusually soundly. Expecting to say good-bye to his faithful friend, Mr. Deeks entered Mackay's room. When he returned to his men, he dismissed them and ordered all preparations for the march to cease, for McKay was lying on his bed, burning with fever. During the whole day, his Waganda boys with solemn, questioning faces flitted quietly about, doing their necessary duties. No doctor was near. Mr. Deeks himself was weak and could do but little. The care of the sick missionary was left largely to untrained Waganda Christians who did the best they knew to cool his fevered brow. During the next four days Mr. Mackay, in his delirium, knew not the loving black nurses who, in their simple way, were doing their utmost to win their beloved teacher back to life, but his spirit would not be detained. His master called, Enter thou into the joy of thy lord, and Alexander Mackay was gone. I had a coffin made of the wood he had cut for the boat, wrote Mr. Deeks, and at two o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday I buried him by the side of the late Bishop Parker, The Waganda Christians and the boys of the village stood around the grave, and I began to read the burial service, but broke down with grief and weakness. The boys and Waganda Christians sang the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, in Luganda, and we returned to the house, never to forget that day. So it was that Africa lost the man whom Stanley called the best missionary since Livingston. End of chapter 12